Hi, this is Oscar. This is Sanjana. And this is Hayden. You are listening to Daily Discoveries, and we are part of The Daily at the University of Washington, and this is the podcast where we discuss new discoveries in Science Weekly. <laughs> so this week we are lucky enough to be interviewing David Jurgens and Joe Watson from the David Baker Lab. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so my name is David Jurgens, and I'm a grad student in the Baker Lab. I'm in my fourth year, and yeah, for my PhD I've just been working on kind of generative AI for protein design. And hello, I'm Joe Watson. I'm a postdoc in David Baker's lab, and I've been working very closely with David Jurgens on uh, yes, generative AI for protein design. So right on. Uh, I think specifically today we're going to talk about your guys' recent paper uh, on the RF diffusion model you, you all have created. So mm-hmm. if you guys could just give us like a brief overview of kind of what the model is and yeah, kind of like what's going on with the model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I can start. So. Um, you know, as protein designers, we're really interested in being able to design uh, new proteins to carry out functions that we think will be beneficial for, uh, you know, to address human problems. So proteins are these molecules which exist in uh, throughout nature, really, and they're able to carry out really a vast array of, of functions. And we want to be able to sort of recapitulate those functions and hopefully go further to design new problems and new solutions to, uh, you know, societal problems. So, you know, AI is obviously really changing so many areas in life at the moment and we were really interested in trying to sort of leverage those improvements in AI uh, to basically be able to better design proteins. So we trained a a model called RF diffusion which is a diffusion model which is this class of generative models which is just uh, in other areas have been shown to be extremely powerful at uh, generating things like text and images and we basically wanted to adapt them for use in protein design. And that's what uh, you know, RF diffusion is. Yeah, and I think I might just add that the reason we kind of set out to make a generative model for protein backbones to begin with was like, so there was like a recent advance in protein sequence design with protein MPNN, so fixed backbone sequence design, where you know the structure of a protein, but you want to find the sequence that would fold up into that structure. So that was like a really nice paper that came out recently. And at that point, in the protein function design problems that we wanted to do, we were kind of limited in our ability to find backbones that we thought would plausibly have these functions that Joe was talking about. And so then, to solve this bottleneck, I think we we looked for generative models of backbones. And so then then comes like the, the diffusion model being selected as the type of generative model that we would use. Just a clarifying question, why is it called diffusion model? What about it makes it a diffusion model? Yeah, so the uh, idea in uh, diffusion models is that you're basically applying many steps of noise, and this is sort of analogous to diffusion with sort of Brownian motion, um, in that it is this application of random noise at each time step that diffusion models are, are built upon. So it's sort of similar to those image generating models, right? The Dolly, is that what inspired you? Is there why why did you go that direction to use this sort of model? Yeah, it's a really good question. It is very closely analogous to uh, Dolly, actually, and the I think you know people who are familiar with Dolly uh, may well be able to sort of see the analogy to 
protein design and why we thought uh, diffusion models were such a good basis for uh, new protein design methods uh, in that, you know, when you type a prompt into DALI, you get a whole selection of different images out, which all, you know, look uh, kind of similar to what you've asked DALI to, to make you, but they're all quite different. They're diverse. And that's one thing that we really like in protein design. We want to be able to find different solutions, different possible solutions to the problems that we're trying to solve. So that was one uh, sort of really key benefit of uh, diffusion models generally. A second one is that they are sort of truly generative. You can start from pure noise and you can generate brand new things. And this is something that, uh, again, something that's built upon the diversity. If something is generative, you can pull many different samples from it. You can get a lot of different potential solutions. And because we can make these on the computer, and typically we can test you know, many thousands on the computer and have a pretty good sense of which 10 or 20 are going to work in the lab, we, uh, you know, we'll we can, you know, having that capacity to make many thousands on a computer and then filter that down to a, a, a set that we can test in the lab is really handy. Um, some previous methods, you're kind of limited in this step, and you can only make a few potential solutions, and if those solutions don't look good on the computer, they probably won't be good in the lab. Um, so I think that was the key motivation. So I noticed, and I think you could mention as well, so you guys use RF diffusion in kind of tandem with protein uh, and PNN. And so are you mostly then just generating structures with the RF diffusion that you just like have to fill in the sequence? Or yeah, can you kind of elaborate on that relationship between RF diffusion and protein and PNN? Yeah, totally. Great question. So yeah, we, with RF diffusion, just generate backbone. So the diffusion process itself is only manipulating coordinates and angles of of frames and, and atoms. And then Protein MPNN does all of the sequence design for that final backbone. But we did think about, and it is totally possible, to perform diffusion not only over the structure but also simultaneously the sequence. And we did think about doing that, but since the combination of just doing backbone plus Protein MPNN was so successful, we just decided that was the way to go. Um, in the paper, you mentioned that there are other AI protein models as well. Was there something that they those models lacked that caused you to develop RF diffusion? And was there something you were like trying to solve that those other methods couldn't fix? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, there have been many new sort of AI-based uh, methods for protein design recently. One sort of perhaps the sort of first really popular method was this method that was called hallucination, where essentially you start with a, a completely random protein sequence. So, you know, proteins are made up of these amino acids, you can just randomly arrange them, and you can then predict the structure of that with a neural network, and then make a mutation, so randomly change one of those amino acids, and then make a prediction again and ask, is this more like a protein than it was last time? So you can gradually, through iterative sort of changing of amino acids in the sequence, you can generate um, protein structures. And this worked quite well. Um, and actually, recent work is uh, sort of manipulating this process has shown really impressive results. But I think we there are sort of some problems with that uh, method generally. It sometimes sort of struggles to make sort of coherent global uh, structures, so it sort of gets stuck in what we call local minima, so it's sort of, you know, unable to make the sort of large changes that are required to sort of make this a really good structure. This is something which is not a problem in diffusion models. This was, again, one of the motivations behind training a diffusion model. And now I think, you know, there are also other diffusion models, and to our knowledge, RF diffusion is sort of currently state-of-the-art in its performance, and I think this is really because we focus very heavily on um, in-silico metrics. So, metrics that we can calculate on the computer that we know 
uh, are indicative of success experimentally. And we really, you know, just focused on trying to get really good performance on these metrics uh, in the hope that if we could do that, things would work experimentally. And indeed, that has been the case. That by, I suppose, not stopping until we got really, really good computational metrics, that means that now we have uh, really high rates of uh, experimental success too. The other question I had is looking through on kind of how you guys train the data set. I mean, it seemed like you guys took structures from the PDB, and I think like the words were like, you noised them, or like you basically iteratively put more noise in. So can you guys go through that process? Because obviously, at least the way like I see the structure design, or the, uh, you know, the design is you take random noise and then you denoise it. So you know, kind of what was the reasoning behind noising it? Yeah, so all diffusion models, they, or I, I don't know if I can rigorously say all, but like most of them, they use Gaussian noise on whatever data modality, which is a fancy word for just saying like whatever type of data that you're working with, they use Gaussian noise kind of iteratively to start from the perfect protein or the perfect image, say. Let's just think about images for a sec. Diffusion models to train them, you would take your perfect image and then iteratively apply Gaussian noise in three dimensions to perturb the pixel values, the RGB values. And then you can apply it for, you know, as many steps as you want. And then you're going to have this like schedule that says, okay, after say 200 applications of Gaussian noise, there's like essentially zero information left over about what the original image was. And then during the training process, you would say feed your image network like a version of, of the perfect image from your data set that was noised for like 50 steps. So it's like kind of pixelated. There's a lot of information still. And then you're going to have it try and predict either the final perfectly denoised image or analogously one step of denoising backwards, basically. So for RF diffusion, it was basically, this is a little more complicated because you're like working in 3D space and you've also got, you know, different types of representations that people are working with, with different like structure, protein structure networks. So we had to use those data modalities and supply Gaussian noise with those modalities. So for Euclidean space, that was quite simple. The, the Euclidean coordinates of C alphas in a protein, you can just apply Gaussian noise in three dimensions, iteratively. The trickier part, which we had a lot of help uh, from our collaborators on, was noising the frame, what we call the frame orientation. And so the frame, A frame, is associated with a single amino acid. And you can think of it as a triangle that is just connecting the N C alpha C atoms for each, for each residue, each amino acid. And so this frame, like, you can kind of twist it in space and it has a defined orientation. And so you actually also, because these structure prediction networks, because Rosetta Fold, for example, processes actually the orientation in space of these frames, we had to noise those as well. And so to do that, we supply basically effectively Gaussian noise, but on the space of rotations. That space is called SO3 for any math nerds listening. <laughs> right on. Very cool. Yeah. So you sort of have to define your own noise. So the simplest noise you have is an amino acid, or is it these single atoms within the amino acid? The simplest, yes, good question. So we're not noising kind of the full atom picture of the protein. We, we divide it up into chunks that are slightly larger than the individual atoms, 
basically on an amino acid basis. And so there's the, the frame orientation, which is like three, three atoms rigidly connected. And then there's like the C alpha where, where it, that, that's like the translation of this frame in space. And then the orientation would be the rotation of the frame in space. All right. Well, something that, what I thought was like the, the coolest thing about all of this is seeing those amino acids, I assume is what they were, and then jiggling together and sort of forming a protein around another protein. And then that is like, you're binding to a specific target protein. Can you tell me more about how you guys did that? And then I have some follow-up questions. <laughs> yeah, so uh, indeed, Diffusion has this nice feature that it makes remarkably nice movies, um, <laughs> especially when we have Ian Hayden, the person who makes these wonderful movies for us. Um, so, yeah, as, as David mentioned, really, we start from uh, pure noise, but uh, this is these sort of little triangles, if you like, floating in space. These represent amino acids. And then gradually, through many steps, these become closer and closer to a protein structure, and eventually, at the end, actually do, you know, come to a, a protein structure. And as you mentioned, you know, we're able to do really cool things, like we're able to make proteins that bind to other proteins. And all of this sort of falls under this umbrella of um, conditional generation. So... We can do sort of unconditional generation, just as you can do unconditional image generation. You can just say, make me any image. And this works for proteins. We can just say, make me any protein. And, and this works really nicely. But, you know, when we want to solve real problems, I guess, we care about having a protein that really does something. And for that, we need to be able to control this model. So we need to control RF diffusion. Um, and, and we call this conditional generation. And one such way that we can do that is to provide the structure of a protein that we want to, to bind with another protein. And then, uh, as you can see in these movies, um, you know, you have one protein structure and then these sort of, this cloud of, of residues and gradually these will get denoised until they end up being a binder on the surface. And, and then what's really cool is that we test these in the lab and a lot of them work. So, yeah. So does that mean that each one of these jiggling amino acids is actually one of the 20? It's not just a general amino acid, it is actually a specific amino acid. So this is a, a sort of really interesting thing that when we think about designing proteins, it's somewhat, I think, non-intuitive that we build the protein structure without a sequence. Okay. So yeah. that uh, residue floating in space could have could become any amino acid, okay. really. And we decide what amino acid it is you know, after the fact, once we built the structure, we then ask protein MPNN, what is the best amino acid that could fit in this structure. And so we do the sort of structure first, then we find a sequence that could fold to that, um, which is, I think, sometimes non-intuitive to think about. Yeah, that's really interesting, because, like, you know, when I, when I tend to think about binding interactions or just protein interactions with either an ion or small molecule, you know, another protein, right, you have, like, these chemical interactions, whether they're, like, electrostatic or hydrophobic interactions, but if you don't know, like, what amino acids are there, yeah, like, so... Because, I, I mean, the results from your guys' proteins are quite astounding. <laughs> they made some very good binders. Um, but, yeah, so why, like, how is it that they're so good, but you don't know what the chemical properties of the amino acids are? Like, that's, I, I didn't realize that prior, and so that's, I don't know, kind of astounding. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of astounding. I think I would say that, um, you know, to really learn that, so... Our diffusion is a neural network that we train. Gradually, it learns how to do this process. And to learn that process, sort of implicitly at least, it must be learning about chemical uh, amino acid identities and chemical interactions and these kind of things. So we have very strong evidence. And actually now, sort of 
post-release of the paper, we do have sort of an explicit representation of the, the sequence within RF diffusion. Um, but I think even before, you know, although we're building these protein structures, these, these backbones, implicitly the model knows quite a lot about sequence because it has to to learn the task that we train it to do. Um, but yeah, it's a great question and it's uh, quite non-intuitive, I think, when you think about protein design in this way. So then are the amino acids in the target, are they defined? Yeah. Okay. The, the model gets to see all the chemistry and the amino acids of the target, yeah. as well as like the side chain conformations of the target. That's all in there. Okay. What if there's like small like signaling molecules? Does it take in those into factor as well? Yeah. Do you mean like kind of cofactors and small molecules? Yeah. Yeah. So the the current version of RF diffusion, which relies on a version of Rosetta Fold that only processes protein atoms can only see protein atoms. So um, maybe there could be like implicit knowledge, you know, if there's like sort of an energetically unfavorable conformation of some side chains in the crystal structure and the model is seeing that, maybe it would assume, you know, there's a cofactor there that would probably be satisfying that high energy side chain conformation, for example. But the good news is that even though we can't explicitly model those right now with RF diffusion, our lab is developing versions of Rosetta Fold that can process all atom information, small molecules and metals. So once that's ready, we're, we're just going to incorporate that in too and be able to see cofactors. So then theoretically, would your noise be like individual atoms and then you could make like small molecules as the target or as your, yeah, and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, do you mean like actually diffusing and designing small molecules too? Right, or is that complete, like, way out of the, I don't know, picture. I mean, I'm daydreamed about that. Like, <laughs> I'm totally daydreamed about that, and I think it'd be really cool. I think maybe there's better networks out there specifically for designing small molecules, and so I think, on our front at least, we'll probably just focus on designing proteins, but I think just the ability to model the small molecules will be huge. Yeah, I would just add that... Um Actually, Tommy Jackala's lab, so Tommy Jackala uh, collaborated with us on this project. His lab have done some uh, sort of diffusion-based small molecule design stuff as well. And I think it's going to be so cool when that's possible. I think we're still some way off that, as David says. But um, yeah, hopefully one day we'll be able to sort of simultaneously design small molecules and proteins and just you know mix and match these things. So, like I, I, mean, I alluded to earlier, your guys' results are quite good. You guys make very good binders. Um, however, like in biological systems, we, I think some of the binding, like the KDs, you don't really see something that great. And so is there any like plan on being able to modulate how good of binders you guys are actually creating? Yeah, because right now they're just like, as I said, they're quite good. <laughs> yeah, this is a really great question. Um, I would say sort of even two or three years ago, we really struggled to make binders at all. Now making binders is, uh, you know, in many cases somewhat routine, but um, and we're quite good at knowing on the computer whether or not something will bind now. We're much, much better than we were, thanks mostly to the development of AlphaFold 2. But we are no good at all currently at predicting how tightly something will bind. Um, it's, it's much more binary at the moment. I think this is something that people are actively working on. We hope that we'll be able to do this because for things like, you know, more dynamic systems where you don't want to just constantly bind and bind forever, you might want to sort of bind and unbind. Uh, the, having this kind of control is going to be really important. And for many biological applications as well, you, you don't necessarily want the absolute tightest binder. You want something that's a, a bit, you know, less strong. 
Yeah, in the paper you mentioned that you did a benchmark test for RF diffusion with like 25 different problems. Um, there were apparently two problems that it couldn't solve. Do you know what those two problems were? Oh gosh, I think Joe would know this better than I do actually. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a great question. So we assembled, we really wanted to sort of quantitative to quantitatively sort of work out how well RF diffusion was doing, both sort of in absolute terms, but also with respect to other uh, approaches. And we sort of hope that this will inspire other people who develop new methods to sort of compare against our sort of tabulated results. But yeah, as, as we found in, in the paper, there were two problems that we didn't do very well on. And actually both of these were problems where we basically wanted to uh, scaffold an enzyme active site. So these are sort of a small collection of amino acids which are able to uh, catalyze some chemical reaction. And this is a really phenomenally difficult design problem. If you have just you know two or three amino acids floating in space but in highly uh, specific positions, and they have to be extremely accurate to carry out the correct sort of function, this is a really hard problem. So what we were able to show actually later in the paper, but not specifically on those problems, is that we can sort of adapt RF diffusion, we can fine-tune RF diffusion to be slightly better at this task, and we can now get some success on what is an extremely difficult task. But yeah, straight out of the box, um, RF diffusion struggled on these sort of really under-constrained problems. Yeah, I was actually kind of curious, so for your enzyme design uh, section of your, at least, and maybe you have more results now, but in the, like the BioRx, I think you guys say that we were able to uh, like scaffold the geometry, but as far as activity, there was no like activity assay for the enzymes. Are you guys actually able to scaffold not only geometry but also like active enzymes, or is that still you know an area of? Yeah, I think that's just still like an ongoing area that we're trying to test out in the lab right now, and so yeah, we're looking to have experimental results as soon as possible on that one. And so I guess. How often are you testing the proteins? Because, I mean, you can generate so many proteins with this model, I assume, right? Every time you want to create either something that binds to something, and then you have to then make these proteins. Is it complicated to then try to synthesize them? Yeah, or I mean, is that not your job? I don't know. Maybe it's... Yeah, well, I was going to say, so for me, being mostly a computer, like uh, a guy who codes and does computational chemistry, like... Yeah. I struggled to, uh, you know, order DNA and get it into cells and actually, like, purify proteins. Okay. I'm a little better now. But, yeah, yeah so it, it's really actually pretty easy to test the proteins. So what you do is once you have your protein sequence, you then encode it as nucleic acids. And once you know the nucleic acid sequence that you want to buy, you just order the DNA from some company near you that can synthesize oligos. And then they'll send the DNA over, and we've got like a pretty sweet protocol now that uh, was developed in the lab that allows us to, to express and purify 96 proteins at once in like a 96 well plate format. And so that makes things way faster. So I think we've gotten good enough now to like from clicking the order button for your DNA to like actually have at least solubility data on your proteins within like a week or so, I would say. Yeah, we just had that in the paper we uh, characterized just about 600 binders and that whole process took about a week of ordering DNA to purifying everything <laughs> to testing that they bound to characterizing the best of them in about a week. And I would say that like people were working long hours, but it is possible. <laughs> So do you ever have folding problems with the proteins? Are they ever not able to fold? Or, I mean, are you using human cells or bacteria? Or 
Yeah, this is a great question. So we generally purify proteins in bacteria when we can. This is much, much simpler than doing things in mammalian cells. And yeah, a lot of our designs still fail. Um, you know, our success rates experimentally in some cases now are 50%, I guess, in the... They range from sort of 10% to maybe 70%, but still, that's a lot of designs that don't work. And we don't fully know why these don't work. I think, thankfully, we can purify 96 at a time, so generally we um, largely ignore the ones that uh, don't work if we get good ones that, that do work. Yeah, so a lot of things don't work. And this could be for solubility. They stick together, they just form a big sort of aggregate. Or um, sometimes things are just really difficult to express. And probably sometimes also we're wrong, right? You know, we predict that something will fold to a specific structure and it just doesn't. Um, Do you then tell the model after, hey, this one didn't work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a really great question. <laughs> Going forward, we... Um, you know, I think as we move into areas where there is just less data to train the model on, this sort of active learning process where you can uh, train a model, generate designs, see which ones worked, and then train on that data is just going to become more and more important. People are already, already doing this with quite some success, actually, and I think this is like one of the next frontiers of protein design. Uh, and it will allow us, I think, and help us to solve the sort of big... Do you guys have any thoughts on where this, you think this will be the most successfully applied? Obviously, therapeutics. Um, are there any other areas that, you know, maybe are kind of not in people's general uh, idea sphere, but are kind of cool applications? Yeah, well, you mentioned therapeutics. I think that, for sure, will be useful. And we're already seeing on other targets, like, success in the lab for binder design. So I think that's going to be a really exciting area to see what RF diffusion can do. For vaccine design, I think we'll, it will also be pretty big. So the like symmetric motif scaffolding, as well as the symmetric oligomer generation, those are both going to be really big for designing nanoparticles that can display antigens, uh, like viral antigens on the surface. Uh, and for use as vaccines, then, I mean, we only mentioned this like once in the paper, but for the materials design space, the ability to generate these oligomers to maybe put metals in them, make repeat proteins potentially. I think this could could have a big impact on the materials design space too, kind of trying to make long range materials that have, you know, assemble conditionally on things on the presence of metals or molecules. So those are my initial thoughts anyways. Yeah, I would just add that it's been extremely rewarding, I think sort of We've made the code available now. The code has been used in the lab by many people already, and it's now open source and completely publicly available. And already people are coming up with crazy ways to use it. And I think, you know, scientists around the world all have their own applications that, you know, they want to build solutions for. And most of these we haven't even thought about. And I think what's sort of been really great is that we, we believe that these diffusion models offer an amazing framework to be doing protein design. RF diffusion is definitely not the last diffusion model, but it's clearly um, performing really quite well now. And I think now people are taking that and using it in their specific cases, and I think we're going to see a, a whole range of different applications, um, which is extremely exciting. Well, what were your biggest challenges when you were developing this model? Man, yeah. So, I mean, we had early versions of the model, and we had this benchmark that Joe mentioned. So the, the in silico benchmark of just like, you've got to have a backbone that when you protein MPNN it, and then you put that sequence into AlphaFold, AlphaFold predicts the exact same structure that RF diffusion spit out. And for the longest time, I mean, it was a really long time, like months and months and months. 
we would have gorgeous looking protein backbones flying out of RF diffusion. And it was insane. And we were so excited. And then we would protein MPNN these things and put them through AlphaFold. And they wouldn't AlphaFold. And we, we were so dumbfounded by this. Because honestly, nowadays, like usually you can tell by just looking qualitatively at a protein structure. Is it globular? Does it have secondary structure? You can tell pretty quickly, is it going to be designable? But for some reason, these would just not pass our benchmark. And we had to try so many different things, so many different training variations, like inference variations to get RF diffusion to actually pass those in silico benchmarks. So I would say that was like the thing that was hardest and took the longest time. Actually, while I was sitting here, I had another question come up. Uh, and maybe this is, has to do with like a misunderstanding of AlphaFold. But as far as I was aware, like AlphaFold's pretty good at predicting structures of like known or that are similar to kind of known proteins. But when you start getting out into like the wonky world of never before seen structures, it doesn't do quite as well. Uh, and you guys had mentioned that like your RF diffusion model is generating all these new structures, and it's really cool and very diverse. So. Do you guys have any, like, I guess, are, are they very confident AlphaFold predictions when they are folded? And, yeah, it's my understanding of AlphaFold just kind of mixed there. Is that the issue? Yeah, no, this is a fantastic question. And you're completely right that for natural proteins uh, that sort of, you know, every now and again, evolution comes up with a new protein, right? You have a brand new sequence that looks nothing like any other sequence that has existed before. And AlphaFold, in these cases, generally really struggles to predict its structure accurately. There's this sort of remarkably useful feature of de novo designed proteins, so sort of these proteins that we design, um, that AlphaFold is very, very good at predicting their structures from uh, the, the sequence that we put on them. And this is for a, a number of reasons, really. We design typically very ideal proteins. I would say that the proteins we design, uh, you know, are sort of quote-unquote better than natural proteins. They're very, very stable. They are very easy to make in the lab, all of these sort of nice properties. And we think basically it, you have a generally quite a simple structure that has a sequence that very strongly encodes that structure. So AlphaFold is able to sort of predict the structure accurately from this completely new to nature sequence. And this is extremely convenient because now in many cases and in this throughout this whole project, you know, we had these benchmarks and we really trusted AlphaFold. Um, so when AlphaFold said, no, I don't think this is the right structure, we believed AlphaFold, right? And because we have so much data showing that AlphaFold is really good when your de novo, your designed backbone is good, um, that we trusted AlphaFold. And, you know, eventually we worked out the sort of tricks and requirements to train a, a diffusion model reliably. And then AlphaFold started really liking these structures. And then at that point, we felt ready to go into the lab and test these designs. And then I think the results uh, were just sort of really excellent. Um, Does it ever come up with any, I don't know if this is sort of asking the same thing, but any structures that you never see really? Like you have these typical secondary structures, alpha helices, beta sheets, whatever. Do you, does it ever come up with any really weird things that you would, like, maybe it thinks it makes sense? I mean, you're training it on natural structures, mm -hmm. but does it sort of go out of this boundary sometimes and come up with weird stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we believe it does, and we have, I'd say, strong reason to believe that it is generating protein structures that definitely are not present in the protein Data bank, which is what we trained on, but also 
we're pretty sure that it can generate structures that aren't even in these massive kind of metagenomic structure databases like the ESM Atlas or the AlphaFold structure database. Um, we've done some analysis on this and and we can't make like super, say, strong claims about it, but there's there's evidence suggesting that we do that. And often when you look at the proteins, I mean, it's hard to tell. Sometimes they do look pretty weird and awkward. And sometimes they look weird and awkward, and then they fold up with AlphaFold, and that's kind of surprising. But yeah, I mean, it seems to be the case that that it can actually generalize beyond the training set. And in my mind, like, my intuition of this is like, so the data set, so it's fitting the data set of proteins that we train it on. And in my mind, I picture this data set as like a bunch of sort of like, this is a weird analogy, but like a, a bed of nails that each nail is a protein. And then, and then there's kind of like some, some points that are taller, some points that are shorter, kind of talking about like representation of a certain fold in the data set. And there's all these like pins sticking around and it's kind of like a surface and then RF diffusion in my mind when you fit it is sort of like draping a blanket over this surface and so now you're like able to walk along this surface and when you're on a point on the surface that is near one of the pins then you're going to generate maybe like a known protein structure but then if you're like in between the pins on the surface you know, you're still kind of like on the surface of real protein structures, presumably, but there was no data there. So you're kind of like generating beyond the original data set. I guess the last question that I had, when Canada's is directed at both you guys, is what are your you know future plans? Do you plan on continuing I develop developing out uh, this kind of this RF diffusion, maybe taking it in a different direction? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a few of us that are still very interested in seeing how far we can push RF diffusion is definitely not the best that it could be. So there's ongoing efforts now to see how far we can push it, how accurate we can get it. And yeah, then on like the design front, I think I, that's getting really fun. And so there's a bunch of really cool design problems now that, you know, I'm working on to say, see how far we can go with a ligamer design. So we're now trying to push the size of the oligomers that we can generate. And we're also incorporating new tricks to make repeat proteins. And I think, at least for me, I'm just interested in making more and more complex, large functional systems. A lot of them are on the materials design front, I would say. Yeah, and I'm also sort of, um, I suppose, committed to continuing developing these kind of methods. I think, you know, in Art Diffusion, we really tackled quite a narrow subset of the possible problems that we want to be able to solve as protein designers. Um, and this was because we had these in silico metrics that we trusted. We knew if we could achieve certain performance on these in silico metrics, we would uh, likely be able to make things that worked. I think the next sort of frontier is, as we sort of alluded to earlier when we were talking about active learning, is you know thinking about how to go beyond uh, what we already sort of understand. In the, for many, in many cases, um, you know, off the top of my head, antibody design, for example, um, is an unsolved problem currently. And this is really challenging. We don't have good ways on the computer to know if you've successfully designed an antibody. And therefore, we need to think about, you know, how can we both make methods to do this? This is a phenomenally difficult problem. But also then, how can we know that we've we've actually done it when we build these methods? Because, you know, ideally, when we're developing methods, we don't want to be, you know, 
every time we have an idea, go through a three-month process of you know testing things in the lab only to find out that it was a bad idea. Uh, so we need to build sort of good, quick methods for knowing whether our developments are working. And I think you know that is the next frontier of protein design is trying to tackle these problems, which we really just don't understand currently how to do. I just have another idea too, which is that I think we're definitely aware that not all chemical function that you would want a protein to do may be encodable by a single structure. And so what we're working with, with RF diffusion anyways, is like we kind of design a single structure, we try to nail that structure with protein MPNN, we alpha-fold a single structure, but there could be instances where the function that you want might be encoded by an ensemble of structures or a particular dynamic movement of a protein. And so that, I think, is also on the frontier. So we're looking at, at ways to solve those types of problems, too. Yeah, do you guys, you know, <clears throat> just, just hypothetically, do you guys think you would have, like, a you know, protein that maybe binds some sort of signal and, like, binds the DNA? Basically, do you guys think you could design, a like, a transcription factory anytime soon? Or are we far away from that? Well, yeah, Frank and Mink Young and co-workers actually put out rosettafold nucleic, RF nucleic, which is a rosettafold network that predicts the structure of protein nucleic acid complexes, as well as just nucleic acids on their own. So we're definitely not too far away from being able to, you know, try and do the same binder design pipeline, but with RF nucleic against nucleic acids. Yeah, and I think that de novo protein design is such a good platform for these kind of things because I think so much of what we do is incredibly modular. We build these little modules. So, you know, you said, you know, bind to one protein and it binds to DNA. Uh, you know, we're getting better and better at doing each of these things. And then this becomes a challenge of how you integrate these things, how you optimize them so that it's a really good uh, transcription factor and this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think that. I suppose David and I have mostly worked slightly at the more sort of foundational level of trying to build these methods for building these sort of uh, modular components of what then people sort of higher up the food chain, I guess, are trying to incorporate into these really complex systems. And I think we're not that far off that. I think that is coming and it's really exciting. Okay, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to Daily Discoveries.